all miss each other so much, right? Missing you guys, missing seeing you. Uh, this is just such a bizarre thing to be in an empty room. Uh, we long, we keep praying for that day to be back together. And a special shout out to you young families. It was so good to see a glimpse of, of the messiness, right? James and Alicia, good on you. And everyone like you having a go. Uh, so good to see Nerylin, people who are watching this on their own, who are really feeling uh, cut off. Hello to you. Uh, I trust that this will be a part of what God is using to hold on to us, to stir us, to strengthen us. Uh, so how about I pray for us, then we'll dive right into this word. Uh, Father, we, we do thank you that we are with you now, that you are with us now by your Spirit. Uh, we thank you particularly that we can connect together uh, in the things of your word. We wish it could be in person, though we do thank you for this time and ask that it would be a great blessing. Uh, Father, that you would meet us where we are at, that you would uh, stir and strengthen, uh, that you would call us to uh, look to Jesus, to live for him, to trust in him another day, another week. We ask that this would be for your honour and for our good. Amen. Well, we are returning back to our study of Esther, a book in the Old Testament which covers the events of about 10 years and focuses in particularly on one of them. It's a very unusual book, very different to what we're used to, say a Gospel of Jesus or a letter of Paul, because God's name isn't mentioned once, he doesn't speak once, there's no miracle recorded at all. So why is this book in the Bible? Well, because this compressed account becomes for us a window into what God is doing across the ages. See, what is God doing in our world, in our moment? That was a question that was asked around the dinner table at my place this week, and very sincerely, what's God doing? Particularly as my kids are growing in their awareness of the world that they live in, uh, particularly the brokenness of it, the pictures of Afghanistan, of September 11 of the uncertainty of a global pandemic. Where is God? What is he doing in all this? Well, the book of Esther sets us up to answer that question at both a very broad level, but also a very personal one. See, here's the thing. It's what makes the book of Esther so different to any other book in the Bible that actually makes it so relevant and relatable to our experience. See, much of life can be explained naturally, right, without referring to God. Uh, we can trace back the events of Afghanistan to September 11 and then even further back. We can take a bunch of cells and put them under a microscope and understand a virus that has brought the world to its knees. Many of the circumstances in our lives can even be traced back to decisions that we or others made. We swim in a culture that rarely needs to reference God to make sense of the events of history. Even as Christians, right, we, we swim in this culture and so we can think of our lives as very ordinary, very unspiritual. I mean, for, for many of us, no direct word from God, no miracle. Well, that's the book of Esther in the Bible. 
which we'll see this morning, has two key themes that are woven together for us that give us a window into what God is doing across the ages in our moment if we would have eyes to see it. So let's get to that. Bit of a recap. We're we're diving back in after a short pause. This account is set in a real place, in a real moment in history, the ancient kingdom of Persia. The rule of King Xerxes, who ruled from 486 BC to 465 BC, about a 21-year rule there. In fact, you'll see a, a timeline there. So this is before the time of Jesus, a real place, a real moment, where the Jewish people are facing a great threat, the threat of genocide, of being annihilated. Why? Well, come back to chapter 3, verse 1, because King Xerxes honoured a man named Haman, elevating him to give him a seat of honour higher than all the other people. But there's this man that Haman comes across, Mordecai, verse 2, who is a Jew who would not bow down before Haman. This infuriates him. Such is his pride, such is the nature of pride, that he determines to wipe out not just Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people, since Mordecai was a Jew. It's a plan that he brings to the king in possibly a a subtle way, possibly deceives the king, but anyway, the the king is the kind of king who just signs off anything, yet whatever, go for it. He gives Haman the power to issue a decree for genocide. Meanwhile, Esther, who is a closet Jew, She's kept her Jewish heritage, ethnicity, secret. Well, she becomes King Xerxes' queen, right? And she is compelled by Mordecai to step up to speak out on behalf of her people, to save them, to spare them. This is something that might actually mean death for her. See, no one was able to come and approach the king unless invited. And if you did that, you would be killed unless you found the king in a good mood who would excuse you. Well, that's where we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. She puts on her royal robes and she comes into the presence of the king. Surely her, her, her heart, her stomach churning. Yeah, yeah, these are the last steps that I'm ever going to take. But it just so happens that the king has woken up on the right side of the bed. He's in a good mood. And he asks, verse 3, Esther, what is it? Queen Esther, what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. Verse 8, her reply is to, well, come to a banquet with Haman that I'm preparing for you and I will answer the king's question. Verse 9, Haman, uh, the 2IC to the king, this, this impressive man, he heads home all excited about being included in the king's, the queen's banquet. But as he heads home, he comes across Mordecai, who refuses to give him honour. And so Haman goes home, his wife and his friends are there, and he says to them, well, he starts boasting about, verse 11, all of his wealth, his many sons, the way the king had honoured him, and so on. Verse 13, but. All this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. See, such is the case with pride, it's never satisfied. This guy has everything. He's the second most important in the world to the king, but that's not enough. 
Pride is insatiable, it's competitive, it's never satisfied. And so he actually loves his wife's idea of setting up a pole some 23 metres high to have Mordecai impaled on it. He loves it. He says, well, the wife suggests that he go to the king to get his approval and then get on with life. That's where we pick it up, chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. Just read that again. That night, the king could not sleep. This is such a compressed account spanning a a lot of time. It slows down on this one verse, this one very ordinary human experience because it becomes the hinge to the entire book. It becomes a sliding doors moment. You know that expression, if, if you're old enough to remember that movie, it's way back in the 20th century, uh, the late 90s, a movie called Sliding Doors. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow plays the actress, which tracks two alternate stories, which head in radically different directions, and it plays them out kind of side by side as it goes on. And the very hinge point is whether she managed to get onto a train as the doors were sliding, she was rushing to catch it, One of them, she gets on and off goes the story. But the other one, she just misses it and radically different trajectory. Well, here's the thing. If King Xerxes had fallen into a deep sleep that night, human history would never have been the same. It's that big a thing from so small a thing that all of human history would have been altered. But the God of the Bible is the God over coincidences because nothing big or little will throw history off his good purpose. That night, the king could not sleep. So in order to try and get to sleep, he asks his attendants to bring in the chronicles of his reign to read it to him. Now, this is kind of intended to be like reading a phone book. Again, if you're old enough to remember those things, the yellow pages that would get delivered, this is supposed to be boring. This is supposed to lull him off to sleep. But as it just so happens, they turn to the page where the record of a threat on the king's life that was foiled by Mordecai is read. Mordecai had stepped in to save the king's life. So verse 3, the king asks, What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? Nothing has been done for him, they answered. Well, it seems that the king isn't the only one who can't sleep this night. Uh, Haman is so worked up, he is full of hatred for Mordecai that he can't wait for the morning, like his wife suggested, to get the king's permission. He's actually come to the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai. And as he comes into the king's presence, the king asks this question. What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? And naturally, because it's the way of pride to be self-consumed and and focused in on yourself, Haman thinks, well, who else could he be talking about but me? And so he comes up with his dream. Here's what you should do, king. Verse 7. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden. Then lead him on the horse through the city streets. Make a fanfare for him. Exalt him. Honour him. 
The king then demands that Haman, verse 10, go at once and do exactly this for Mordecai the Jew. Wow. This is the beginning of the end of Haman. Haman is humiliated. Mordecai is honoured. But it gets worse for Haman than just kind of his dreams dashed and a bit of egg on his face. Because chapter 7 is now the moment where Esther strikes. King Xerxes and Haman have come back to the second banquet that Esther has thrown for them. And she seizes the moment, verse 3, where she says to the king, If I found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. Now this request of the king shocks him. What are you talking about? And Esther makes clear, well, her and the Jewish people have been set aside to be annihilated. And the king is furious. He says, verse 5, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? And the readers, us, we're thinking, um, you, Xerxes, you are the man who gave your signet ring to Haman back in chapter 3 to sign off on this decree to kill the Jews. Though, and there's a possibility that he's actually been um, fooled by Haman early on, tricked, that he didn't actually realise it meant the killing of, just rather the enslaving of. But anyway, we're not surprised. King Xerxes is a morally bankrupt, pleasure-loving little boy in a grown man's body. And so he's furious that someone would dare actually do something that only he, the king, he's not concerned for the people, he's just concerned out of his pride that someone is stepping on his turf to do such a thing and so he leaves the room furious Haman recognizes what is going on and he gets down on his knees because verse 6 Esther has says it's this man Haman an adversary this enemy and so Haman heads home to the pole in his front yard but not as he expected as he is hoisted up and impaled on the pole. And then, verse 10, the king's fury subsided. There's three chapters that form the heart, the hinge of this account, this book in the Bible. Now, there's more to come in the story, but we've been taken into this window of what God is doing in the account of Esther, and then more broadly across the ages. What is that? Can you see it? It's the striking theme of reversal, of great, massive reversal, a profound turning of the tables. The way the account is put together, we are supposed to be struck by these things. Let me take you through the contrasts, the reversals quickly. The book opens up with Mordecai, dressed in sackcloth and ashes. Haman is highly honoured. He's the second most in person, per, person in the 
uh, kingdom. He wears the king's signet ring. Though, at the end of the book, Mordecai is clothed in royal robes. He wears the king's signet ring and we find at the end of the book that he is the second most powerful man in the kingdom. At the start, Haman is furious that Mordecai, the Jew, won't bow before him. It's what will lead to his fall. And yet, just before Haman's life ends, he's on the ground begging Esther, the Jew, for his life. Haman had a pole set up with the intent to have Mordecai hung on it, but his life ends on that very pole. And chapter 9, verse 25 puts it like this. His scheme against the Jews came back onto his own head. We're supposed to be struck by this massive reversal that has happened through these events. And there's even more. Let me just give you a taste of it. The, the book opens up with two Persian feasts and it finishes with two Jewish feasts. It begins with an anti-Jewish decree and finishes with a pro-Jewish decree. At the start, Esther is identifying as a Gentile. She's a hidden Jew. But at the end, it's the Gentiles who are wanting to identify as Jews. This is a remarkable book. When you stand back and, and see the hinge and see the symmetry. In fact, it's so cleverly crafted and the, the symmetry is so striking that we might even be tempted to think, oh, this is a little too neat to be true, isn't it? Is this more of a work of art than it is an account of history? Well, no doubt the author is a skilled artist who has used his, her, the author's anonymous, skilled to draw out the ironies and poetic justice in such a vivid and vibrant way. But only because they saw these ironies, these reversals in the events, not because they created them. Because here's the thing, God is the great artist behind these events, working a great reversal through the most mundane events, a king who couldn't sleep one night. God is a God of order, not chaos, of design, not chance. Esther is not a parable, but you might call it an artistic narration of history. An artistic narration of history, of things that really happen, that draw our attention to the God who is behind these things. And here's where the two big themes of Esther combine. To reveal the hidden hand of God who works great reversal for his people. There's the book of Esther in a nutshell. The hidden hand of God working a great reversal for his people. It's an account that captures about 10 years of history, as I said, but really focuses in on one which then becomes something that becomes true of what God is doing across all of the ages, even our moment. This massive theme of reversal actually takes us into the way of the kingdom of God. The way of the kingdom of God is the way of reversal. And so often in a very hidden, subtle way. And we can know that for sure because of Jesus.
Jesus. Think about that reading, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who being, being God himself, uh, eternally God, uh, enjoying all the privileges, all of the glory that is rightfully his as the eternal God, the one through whom and for whom everything was, ex- was created. This God, this Son of God, let go of all of his rights, his privileges, and reverses himself by binding himself with his creation in the man Jesus, taking on the form of a servant. Taking on the form of a servant. This thought that the eternal God would do this is unique among religious claims. In fact, it's offensive to any other religious way of thinking. I mean, try and picture this. Can you picture Xerxes as he's presented, as we've kind of get, got to know that uh, the, the man with all the power and pomp who wields it to his own pleasure? Can you imagine Xerxes seeing Mordecai down in the ashes dressed in sackcloth and Xerxes taking off his royal robe, stepping off his throne and joining Mordecai in the ashes to identify with him, to walk alongside Mordecai. Can you imagine that? Laughable. In fact, offensive to any powerful ruler who thinks highly of himself. Well, multiply the glory that Xerxes had and abused, but multiply that by infinity. And this God came down in sackcloth and ashes to become one of us. To become a servant for us. He gladly reversed his position of glory to take on the form of a suffering servant. You know, we speak a lot about how God reveals himself in Jesus. If you want to know who God is, what God's like, what God's doing, look at Jesus. And for good reason, because the New Testament has so much to say, so does the Old, about God revealing himself in Jesus. The Word became flesh, Nerilyn. We have seen the glory of the unseen God. He, He speaks the Word of God. He works miracles of God. In Jesus, God is revealing himself. What we don't often think about as much, I think, is how God hides himself in Jesus. How God hides himself. Think about this with me. God comes to earth incognito, undercover, in many senses unrecognisable. I mean, you could have in the first century gone down to the market to get your supplies and lined up behind the God of the universe and not known it. The almighty eternal God has come down as a carpenter. God is hiding himself in Jesus in that you could go past him and not realize you are in the presence of God. The same God who in the Old Testament say Isaiah chapter 6, who just gets a glimpse of the train of his robe and hits the ground crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Every time someone in the Old Testament just gets a glimpse of God, they hit the deck 
And yet you could have walked up and bumped into him and not known that you've just bumped into God. In the coming of Jesus, in the incarnation, the enfleshing of God, God is hiding himself. More, it gets worse. Because he was dismissed as insane, as crazy, by his own family. The Almighty God who has created all things, uh, the God of the mind, was accused of being crazy. And worse still, the very leaders of God's people accused Jesus of being evil, of being the devil himself. <laughs> to, to accuse the Almighty, holy, righteous God of being the devil of being evil himself in many ways god hides himself in jesus and in his hiddenness in jesus he is working to bring about great reversal for his people the great reversal that jesus comes to win for his people the reverse of the curse of sin Galatians chapter 3 captures it so clearly. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. Haman was condemned on a pole because his own evil intent came back on his head. But Jesus was killed on a cross because he reversed himself with the Hamans of this world, with the proud, you and me. Those who, in our pride, have been too busy looking in on ourselves and around ourselves that we've not looked up to God, not honoured him and served him and delighted in him as we ought. <laughs> this eternal God reverses places with us, hides himself in the man Jesus, and reverses himself on the cross to take the judgment we deserve, that it might be fully and finally satisfied, that judgment rightly hanging over us, taken in Jesus. And in many ways, the, the cross comes about because of very ordinary, natural reasons. I mean, think about it. Jesus is put to death primarily because he caused a scene among the Jewish leaders. He comes to preach that the kingdom of God has come in himself, that he is the promised Messiah of all the Jewish scriptures, but he doesn't fit the bill. He doesn't fit the picture according to the Jewish leaders. And so they scheme to have him murdered, just as Haman schemes to come to Xerxes, the Jewish leader schemed to come to the Romans. You, you can put it down to religious reasons. Why does the Roman ruler sign off on his death? Well, political reasons. He just wanted to avoid a scene. He wanted to keep his nose clean. And we're not told of any direct involvement of Satan in the death of Jesus, though no doubt he was in it and delighted in it. The cross of Jesus, in one sense, is very explainable, has lots of ordinary, natural reasons. And yet, behind the ordinary is the God of all history. 
working every detail, working the very real decisions of men and women. And catch this, working evil to come back on itself. God reverses the intent of evil. So that as surely Satan delights in the death of the Son of God, we find that on the cross, Colossians chapter 2, God is making a public spectacle over the spiritual powers, triumphing over them. So that there is now no more condemnation for the enemies of God, who can be reversed positions, no longer enemy, now a child, knowing God as Father. Everything about Jesus reverses the way that it had been. It reverses the way that you come into the people of God. It now no longer runs down ethnic Jewish lines, but rather it's for all and any who would call on the name of Jesus. It reverses the way that you stay in the people of God, no longer keeping law, but by receiving grace. And of course, then came the third day, Jesus' resurrection, which is the great reversal where death and decay give way to life and vitality. The crucified servant raised as the exalted Lord in power, the one before whom every knee will bow, even the proud. The very hope Jesus offers to all his followers, he is resurrected in. Those who would gladly follow him as Lord. The way of the kingdom is the way of a great reversal brought about by God, so often by his hidden hand, even in the work of Jesus. The unseen God who worked great reversal in the account of Esther was working that in the accounts of Jesus is the same God with the same hidden hand working the same event in our life, a great reversal. What is true in Esther in over just a few years, God promises will be true for you over all of yours. Do you trust him? And so as every part of the Bible causes us to ask, do you trust God when he says, I will reverse your life? Let me uh, apply this, particularly this theme, in, in three ways. Firstly, it's the tension of the timing of the reversal. See, uh, we can read accounts like Esther, even Ruth that we've just done through, and we do see this remarkable turning around, this provision of God, this great reversal. But we can read these accounts and think, <laughs> man, when is it going to turn around in my life? When is that great reversal moment coming to me? I, for years, decades maybe, feel like I'm Mordecai in the ashes wearing sackcloth. When will I be lifted up on the horse, robed in fine clothes? We also see the proud. We see the wicked. We see the arrogant continue to go on, unchecked. Uh, justice that isn't served. The Hamans in the spectacular and the ordinary just go on living lives. When is this great reversal coming to my life, to our lives? Well, 
here's where we now need to take great care with our timelines. And this is, this is Bible timeline for, for you. It's, it's now, this reversal, and it's not yet. See, Paul says this, Now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Today, now, this moment, anyone who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus will receive every spiritual blessing in him. The great reversal of becoming enemy to child. But then the same author, Paul says in Romans 13, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So that as many days as you've been a Christian, you are now closer to the day of your salvation. But hang on, I thought now was the day of salvation and Paul's now saying we're closer to it. Well, we shouldn't hope for anything less than God has promised for our moment. Let me say that again. We we shouldn't expect anything less than what God has promised, the spiritual blessings for his people right now before the return of Jesus. But to live with an expectation of full final reversal, the kind that kind of gets presented in Esther, in Ruth, to to expect that now is to set yourself up for a fall. It's to go against what God has promised. Let me give you a taste of that in Jesus. Come to Luke chapter 6. Very familiar words of Jesus. Luke chapter 6, he's standing on a on a mountain in Matthew, on a level plain, probably on the mountain in Luke. And verse 20, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because... Just pause there. Do you notice what's happening? Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will be hungry now, filled later. You will weep now, laugh later. You will be rejected now, rewarded later when well verse 23 rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven there's the day where jesus where god promises to bring about the full and final great reversal the day when jesus returns to wrap up history as we know it when every knee will bow when every tongue will confess catch that this esther is a window into what god is doing the full final reversal it's yet to come and so we i you i'm sure need to keep hearing this message and that is your best life is yet to come your best life is not this one It won't have all the happy endings of Ruth, of Naomi, of Esther. In fact, Jesus promises otherwise. Hungry now, filled in heaven. Weeping now, laughing in heaven. Rejected now, 
rewarded in heaven. Your best life is not this one, it's yet to come. And I reckon this pandemic has been a wake-up for many of us Christians, especially those of us who haven't lived through such trauma and hardship, big moments in life. We might have seen pictures of 9-11 on the TV, but at a distance. We haven't been through any world wars or significant final financial stress. This pandemic, this is big, this is happening. And I think it's actually caused many of us to realise, oh, maybe this isn't my best life. It's shown the delusion that it is to live as a Christian thinking the great reversal and everything God promises will be enjoyed here on the central coast. It won't be. Esther points to a great reversal that God is working in his world. Look back to the cross, see the great reversal that happens there. Look to your life right now and trust that God is working every insignificant detail to his good end and long for that final day when the great reversal will come. That's the first and big thing for us in all of this. Here's the second thing, very quickly. The same hidden hand of God in Esther in the life and work of Jesus, is the same hidden hand at work in your life. Trust him. Trust a word from him that you don't need to look for the spectacular. Thirdly, finally, embrace reversed values. The way of the kingdom is the way of reversal, which means... Our values, the things that we hold highly, are also reversed compared to the way of the world. Pride. In one sense, Esther and Haman in the account of Esther is a sustained illustration of the fate of the proud. That pride does come before a fall. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Embrace humility, weakness, lowliness, uncoolness. Second value for us to be mindful of at the moment is health. There is a lot of talk at the moment about physical health and rightly so, understandably so. But in the midst of all of the talk, how are you going in valuing your spiritual health above even your physical? Because that's what Jesus values. The spiritual health, even above the physical. There'll be a day when the physical will be restored with the spiritual, never to die, decay again. In this age, our spiritual health is what we must cling to, what we must encourage each other to cling to because the world won't do it. And we as followers of Jesus ought to live lives that are out of tune with the world because our lives have been reversed. Reversed in the gospel of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for this word of Esther and how with care and attention we, we just see what an amazing book that it is. How you have been working so powerfully in unseen ways.
We thank you that it sets us up to understand Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. We praise you for his humility, that he would do that on our behalf. And we worship him as our Lord. We, we bow before him. Uh, Father, please continue to help us to live lives that look to the day of his return. When we have great comfort that everything that is sad will be undone will be reversed. And so, Lord, give us faith another day, another week, as we long to see our Saviour face to face. We pray this in his name. Amen.